Hello, and welcome to the Children of Mary podcast. We are Mary's children, and this is her podcast. Live in the studio with me, we have Claire pushing buttons, moving dials, basically controlling the room, giving us little eyes about when it's our turn to talk. We also have Keenan. Man, this guy's dressed sharp. Did you know that the name Keenan actually means sharp? <laughs> I was joking. I was like, dude, you're so sharp. You're going to break our lenses. You're so sharp. And then Claire asked him, what, what does your name Keenan even mean? He said sharp because right. you're keen. Get it? Exactly. Now, we have a very, very, very special guest in the studio. In my opinion, he's a celebrity. Oh, my. I consider him, and he's, he does not agree with me about this. I agree with him. I consider him probably one of the best public speakers in the Catholic Church that's alive today. He came and spoke to our young adult and our, our youth ministry. And afterwards, Keenan, what did you say about his, his talk? Well, it's just, I was new to the to core team. I think it was the first half, right? Yeah. And so still getting, you know, getting the hang of how, how they go. And, you know, you get there and it's um, kind of tired and the kids are, they all get there and they're kind of tired. And then Joe gets up there and he's like, who's ready to die for their faith? <laughs> Amen. I've, I've never been so, I like woke up immediately. And I'm, but honestly, never been so pumped because then he went and gave his talk. And I think he talked about St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I'm, I was just the whole talk was you, phenomenal. We were all ready phenomenal. to die. Yeah. And every time Joe gives a talk, I always ask him, I'm like, dude, how did you do that? Like, it was amazing. So if you are in your parish and you're like, we need a parish mission, I am not kidding you. Joe McLean is the man that you want to get. Not only that, but he is a real a real man of faith. I'm going to give him a chance to talk later, but he's so humble. He would never say these things. <laughs> but I can say it now that I, I am the host. The first time, just an, a little aside. The first time I was ever on the radio was in, on his radio program. He was ho You still host a weekly radio program, yes? I do, yeah. What time and where can they hear that? 8 a.m. Monday morning across the Guadalupe Radio Network or on uh, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Just search for at GRN online. See, told you. He's a celebrity. He's got ats and Twitters and all sorts of social things. <laughs> Sad. But one of the great things I love about Joe is that he's got a great devotion to Maximilian Colby. And this guy walks the walk and talks the talk. And what I'm thinking of right now is he went out and made his own documentary called The Other Side of Fear. So a lot of times we're like, you know, I had a, I've got a great idea. It'd be cool if we had a documentary about manhood and all these various things about dealing with fear, etc. Well, he got the idea. He prayed about it, and he actually did it. And it's an incredible documentary. He has it available for free. Do you want to say a little bit about it, just so sure. that people will know, and then we'll get started with our program? Please. Yeah, praise God. Thanks yeah. for having me on, by the way. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, wow. uh, in spite of all the, the false claims about my talent. <laughs> but uh, uh, the other set of fear, Facing the Father Wound, it's livinghislife.net is the website, livinghislife.net. It's absolutely for free. It's a passion project. Uh, it was the Advent before, see, Advent 2018. Hmm. I was right before Advent, I was in adoration praying, okay, Lord, what do you want me to give up? for Lent this year. And uh, I heard the Lord say to me interiorly, I want you to give up fear. And so I spent my Lent meditating upon fear. And then it kind of struck me by the end that it was this emasculated nature that many men have. Why is that? What, what fears are men struggling through that they just can't seem to find courage or healing or forgiveness or to forgive themselves or to forgive others? So then I said, you know what? There's some guys around Texas. I want to just get it go pull out a camera and go record them, talk to them about this, and I'll put something together. It'll be great. And then I thought, oh, that'll be an idea that'll never happen because we have a lot of ideas. So I right. put it on Facebook to make it real. Right. I took the first step. I said, I'm going to make a documentary film. Pray for me. 
which was scary because yes. I had no idea what You're I was You're not a doing. filmmaker. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so. it's an incredible, incredible documentary. You can watch it with other men. That's great. But if you're watching it alone, you're just going to have the tears flowing, yeah. flowing down your cheeks. There's not a man alive who is not a victim of our culture. And so livinghislife.net, that is free. Go ahead and go get a piece of paper and a pen. Write that down, livinghislife.net, because you're going to want to go watch that after this program. And also have a sheet of paper because I'm going to have a couple of websites that I want to promote to you. Now, before we really get started, let's go ahead and consecrate this program to the Virgin Mary. So please join me in prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Blessed Virgin Mary, we surrender everything to you. All that we are, all that we have, all that we desire, all that we fear, everything that we struggle with, we give it completely to you. We ask you to bring good out of all of our weaknesses, out of all of our mistakes, out of every effort that we make to be good and to be holy. Bring it to your Son, Jesus Christ. Transform us so that we can be made worthy of the gifts of eternal life and be with us at the hour of our death and be with us here present in this room. St. Maximilian Colby, be here present in this room so that we may speak worthily of you and that we can really be penetrated by your message. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, thy well-beloved spouse. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, thy well-beloved spouse. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, thy well-beloved spouse. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the saints really do speak to us from beyond the grave, and there is no saint that has been more influential in my life, personally, than Saint Maximilian Kolbe. A lot of people know him for his, you know, heroic life of virtue, which is very important. But for me, one of the lessons that he taught was to give absolutely everything to the Virgin Mary. And when you hear his voice. And when you read his writings, you realize this is a man who many would call crazy and radical. One of the things that really stuck out to me was he would say, we want to use the best means possible for spreading devotion to the Immaculata. Whatever technology you need to get, get it, use it to spread devotion to the Immaculata. And so I want you to go online and sign up for the Militia of the Immaculata. Yes, that's important. But even more important for me in my life has been the daily Colby emails. Those daily Colby emails that they send you will rock your world. You'll get them the moment you wake up. The first thing you do, you're probably checking your phone, which we shouldn't be doing. But if you're going to check your phone, you might as well have Maximilian Colby, you know, mad-dogging you in the face, telling to give your whole life to the Immaculata. I want to just give you a couple of quotes of things that you can wake up to on a regular basis and also things that we need to hear about how we real because a lot of people will say, oh, your your pious devotion, it's a little extreme. You're losing Jesus in all of this. Where Maximilian Colby would say, no, times 10. And not only that, there's theology to back it up. This isn't just a pious devotion. And he's one of the he's a living proof of the power of this. Let me just read you a couple of quotes and then we'll really get started. This is Maximilian Colby, not me. So imagine, imagine this guy. 
looking at you with that stern look. I love that stern look. Some people don't like the stern look. I love the stern look. We need some strong men telling us to be holy. So here we go, Maximilian. The more you spread veneration and love for the Immaculata, the more souls you will win for her and through her to the most sacred heart of Jesus who loved us unto death on the cross. Pray to the Immaculata with fervor that she may accept us as her own property. Entrust yourself without any limitation to divine providence through the Immaculata. I'll repeat that one. Entrust yourself without any limitation to divine providence through the Immaculata. You are the instrument in the Immaculata's hands. Therefore, do solely what she wants. Accept each thing as coming from her hand. Have recourse to her in all things. Like a child to his mother, entrust all things to her. This is extreme. I love it. Remember always that you are absolute, unconditional, unlimited, irrevocable possession and property of the Immaculata. Whoever you are, whatever you have or can do, all the actions, thoughts, words, and deeds, and all your passions, pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent, belong entirely to her. Convert the entire world to Jesus through Mary this is my favorite part. And we must do it as soon as possible. This is a man whose heart was set on fire out of love for God through the Immaculata. Mr. McLean, of all the talks I've ever heard on Maximilian Colby, yours stuck out to me the most. So I asked, can, can you come and shed some light on the life of Maximilian Colby for us? Yeah, I mean, you, you summed it very well. He's, he's an incredible figure in our... And our church's patrimony. And, you know, it's amazing how very few people actually truly know the story of St. Max right. Kolbe, which is, uh, you know, mind-boggling to me. He's so incredible. Uh, it was 1982 when uh, Pope St. John Paul II canonized him and surprised the world because he he came out in his uh, red vestments, which meant that he was he had been beatified under uh, with white vestments, meaning he was recognized for his purity, his yes. heroic witness to the mm -hmm. faith. But uh, he was canonized under red vestments, which meant he was a martyr for the faith, which is interesting because uh, he was born in 1894 to two parents. His, both of his parents wanted to be religious. Uh, his mom wanted to be a poor Claire, but she couldn't afford the dowry. Uh, you know, fun fact, did you know dowries are still a thing? Like I, I did not know. I did not know, I did not know this. Only because my friend just joined. But right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, when, he, when he told me that there was still a dowry, I'm like, you, you got to be kidding me. It's like 2020. I, wow. I didn't realize there's still a thing, you know, but it is. And her, uh, uh, Raymond Kolbe, his mother could not afford the dowry. So because she couldn't join the religious order, she said, all right, Lord, I, and it reminds me of St. Therese's parents, almost exactly the same story. Uh, she said uh, St. Rita, Saint, I mean, there's so many saints in this sort of the same category where the, they had a design for their life that was going down this road, but God said, no, I really want you to go down this other road. And, and uh, Raymond's mom said, all right, Lord, if I can't be a poor Claire, then I want a husband who loves you more than I do. I want a husband who's devout and pious and, and very Catholic, fervently Catholic. And so God connected her to Julian Kolbe, and he too wanted to be a religious but couldn't. And so the two of them, very poor, very humble parents, very pious parents, they had five boys. Two died at young ages, wow. and so the three survived. 
But as a little boy, Raymond was not like a very pious, good kid. You know, I have uh, six kids and a grandchild. Beautiful, beautiful children. Yeah, thanks. And uh, my youngest is four, and he is by far the most rambunctious. I mean, he <laughs> he he wears this old man out all the time. And Raymond was kind of like that. He very rambunctious, uh, you know, a little young boy. But when he was young, I can't remember. He was like nine or something like mm-hmm. that. He had a a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, I think it had a And uh, the Queen of Heaven came to him, and she offered him the crown of purity or the crown of martyrdom. And she said, which do you want? And he said, I'll take both. Yes. And his mom said afterwards, she did not, she couldn't verify that he actually had this uh, miraculous encounter with the Queen of Heaven. But she did say, I'll tell you this. He was never the same boy after this point in time. Wow. He was completely transformed after this. He was pious and uh, very focused uh, from that point on for the rest of his life. He uh, wanted to go to the uh, brand new Franciscan school. There was some Franciscan friars that came into Poland uh, from Russia. So he, he wanted to go to this school. And he and his brother both went, and he was torn between two calls, two vocations. You see, Poland is a country that's been racked and torn apart for many centuries between uh, the Prussians and the Russians and the Austrians, yeah. and everybody wanted, for whatever reason, everybody wanted to take this country and and tear it to, to pieces. So there was this strong Polish pride among the people. They they. They come and go as far as having property to themselves, but their pride, their nationalism has been very consistent. So young Raymond really felt like he was called to defend his people. In fact, we have copies of his notes from when he was a teenager of uh, drawing up battle plans to defend the Polish people. He would actually invent military weapons uh, and and strategies, and he was serious. He thought he was going to be a a soldier until one day uh, he was... At the point where he was prepared to walk into the superior's office and announce that he was going to leave the Franciscans, which he hadn't, like he was still just a student. Right. Um, mm-hmm. He was going to leave and become a soldier. But at that moment, the doorbell rang and it was his mother. And his mother came to tell him that now that they were empty nesters, you know, so I'm, we're, you know, we're a long way off from being empty right. nesters. But are you four to up to, you know, like I said, my oldest son is married with a child. So uh, we're a long way from this point. But I have always imagined empty nesters to do like, you know, skydiving or shark diving or, I don't know, climbing a mountain. You, you do something interesting when right. you become an empty nester. What Raymond's parents did was they made a decision that they would separate they would get a dispensation to go their separate ways and join religious orders finally. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> so it's a great retirement package. You know, I've, I've, yes. I've offered this to my spouse, and uh, I think after she slapped me and I and I healed from it, I, re- I saw the error in my ways, and I promised never to bring it up again. But uh, yeah, it's, ama- it's, it's mind-boggling that this was a thing, but it's a thing that there, was, wow. there were parents that did this. Um, so she said, I'm going to go join the Poor Clares. Your dad's going to go be a Franciscan. Good luck. God bless. Uh, serve Jesus and Mary and have a great day. And then, you know, I don't know the exact conversation they had, but it must have been like, wow. And that changed his life. That changed the course of his life because then he did go into the superior's office only to say, I'm going to become a Franciscan. And he uh, officially uh, became uh, Friar Maximilian at that point. It was October, I think, 1904 when that happened. Uh, The superior said he was going to send him to Rome to study for the seminary, right, towards the priesthood. This scared Maximilian 
like out of his mind. He begged to be taken off of the list of friars going to Rome. The reason why is because the rumor mill had already begun to spread among the uh, friars that in Rome, prostitutes would harass the young seminarians as they were going to and from their classes to tempt them. And he was so... uh, he was so scared of being tempted in this way that he would rather have never gone than to have dealt with the temptation. Wow, and his superior a- said, yeah, whatever, you're going anyway. <laughs> you know. So, uh, But it, I think it illustrates how uh, St. Padre Pio was the same way. He wanted nothing to do with sin. Like he would, as a little boy, people, the little boys would curse and he would turn and run the other way. Like he wanted nothing to do with to sin. Avoid the near occasion. Avoid yeah. the near occasion. Right. Maximilian Kolbe demonstrates that in this story. He mm-hmm. is the same way. Uh, but in uh, in obedience to his superior, he did in fact go. But when he got there, he 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 contracted tuberculosis and he began to suffer quite uh, quite a lot. And his he would bleed. His lungs would bleed. Oh and all of that. Um, Now, he would suffer from this for the rest of his life. So this was a perpetual sickness, but it was so bad that there were many occasions where he would not be able to go to class. So he would have to uh, convalesce in his cell. So he he got the inspiration because he was totally in love with the Immaculate. He had this inspiration that he would uh, try to uh, spread devotion to the Immaculata, to the whole world. Now, part of what drove this zealousness was he witnessed firsthand the uh, anti-Catholic Freemason uh, movement within Rome. There would be these processions in and out of St. Peter's Square of these Freemasons holding signs that would say, death to the Pope and let Satan reign and and all of this crazy stuff that was pretty commonplace in Rome at the time. And he saw that, and he had uh, he had uh, a sympathy for the souls. And he said, you know, we should be able to convert these people. We should be able to, out of love and zealousness for their souls, share with them the great gift. And he wanted to do that through the devotion to the Immaculata. So he, with permission from his superior, he and a few other friars drew up the battle plans for the Militia Immaculata. And uh, they officially uh, began this incredible movement. Well, he eventually he did get uh, ordained a priest, and uh, he said his very first mass in 1918 on the very altar where the Virgin Mary appeared to Alphonsus of Radisbon. Yes. Now, Alphonsus of Radisbon was an anti-Catholic Jew, and uh, it was Our Lady who appeared to him and converted him instantly. Yes. So wow. it was at this very spot, on this very spot, that he said his very first Mass. And at the end of his Mass, the, the last of all of his prayer intentions was to love to the point of victimhood. This was his first Mass, and this was his heart's desire, to love to the point of victimhood. Well, it wasn't long after this that he was called back to Poland, uh, where he would uh, take the Militia Immaculata to the next level. I mean, uh, it's it's amazing what this man accomplished with so little, really. Yes. Uh, but it also demonstrates how the Queen of Heaven was the, really the wind in his sails, yes. as well as St. Therese of Lisieux and many other saints. Um, who were his re- his regular uh, intercessors. Yes. So uh, he goes there and he gets this idea that he would build an entire city to the Virgin Mary, to the Immaculata. So he finds this giant piece of land and it's owned by a Polish count by the name of Lubecki and a very wealthy guy. And he goes to see this uh, Count Lubecki and he's like, I need this land. The Virgin Mary wants this land. And Lubecki's like, oh, well, my price is really too high. And uh, see... 
Max is smart. He brings with him a statue of the Virgin Mary. He places it on the table while they're negotiating. And the count refuses to come down off the price. Yeah. So Max is like, I can't afford it. And he gets up and he walks away. And Lebecki says, wait, 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 come get your statue. And uh, Max says, leave her there. And then, he, <laughs> and then he walks out. And so some time passes and every day this count is looking at the statue and just realizing that he is denying the queen of heaven, her desire, her wish to have a city built in her honor. Uh, which, by the way, you know, I see your signed humility there. And it's one of the issues uh, about Our Lady that's often misunderstood, you know, as if she was, uh, you know, she felt worthless about herself. Right. True humility is actually quite the opposite. It's accepting the, uh, what God is, has uh, given to you, what God expects of you, uh, without, like, I, when you were talking about my capability as a speaker, I'm, I'm cringing at the thought of it, because I'm not a humble person, right? Oh, I see. I'm a very prideful person. Uh, if I were humble, <laughs> I would just agree with you and say, praise be to Jesus that he has given me these skills. Where Our Lady is like that. She, you know, she is the queen of heaven and earth. When the angel Gabriel appeared to her in Luke's gospel, uh, it wasn't the appearance of the angel that scared her, unlike every other character in sacred scripture, to include the Apostle John himself. All of them are scaredy cats in the sight of angels, not Our Lady. She, she, she was not at all phased by this angel. It was what the angel said that gave her pause. She yes. is the Kekaritomene. And you can imagine that somehow through some mystical uh, relationship between Count Lubecki and this statue, uh, Our Lady interceding for this Count, he's realizing what he's denying right. is the Queen of Heaven and Earth, denying her this uh, incredible gift. And so he succumbed to this wonderful opportunity of guilt, and he called Max back and he said, okay, fine, you may have it. Uh, you may have the land at a cheap price. And so he did. And Max began to immediately build the chapel first, and he put a lot of effort into the chapel. Every other building was not so well built. <laughs> In his world, it was like the chapel had to be nice, but everything else could Amen. be, could be whatever. Amen. Didn't matter. Exactly right. But here's the deserves. fascinating thing about his, uh, this little city that he built. Um, men began to flock to Kolbe and to this city. Neopakolanao is what it was called, the city of the Immaculata. And they began to flock in droves. It really was a city. He had a water treatment facility that was manned by the friars. He had an airport. He had uh, a fire department. He had a radio broadcast studio. He had printing presses. I mean, everything you can think of, they were all there. And there were these friars that came to live in communion with uh, uh, not just St. Max, but also with uh, Our Lady. And it's an amazing, amazing tale, actually. So he began to spread. He was printing a publication called The Night of the Immaculata. Mm -hmm. And he began to, uh, he would print it on the cheapest paper he could find, and he began to spread this uh, subscription all over Poland, and he got himself in trouble with the local newspaper people because they realized they couldn't compete with this guy. He had cheap <laughs> labor, he, you know, and so uh, he was doing, he was outpacing them, uh, and they couldn't keep up. So they they blocked him. They, the, the cancel culture goes way back. And they, <laughs> they tried to cancel Max, and so... <laughs> they, they said, you can't use our kiosks and you can't use our, our paper boys. Wow. So he said, no problem. 
that's fine. And he built his own kiosks and he recruited his own system of paper boys. Wow. And he began to distribute far and wide. Then, of course, he received the airplane and he had Brother Friars learn how to fly it. And then wow. they began to distribute the night in multiple languages all across Europe. And he actually traveled across Europe. And the, the, the interesting thing about Max Kolbe is wherever he would go, it didn't matter who you were, he would always try to put a, uh, a little uh, miraculous message. Metal yes. on everyone. You could be a Jew, you could be a Gentile, you could be a Nazi. He, he you are a soul of the Most High God. You are a, a child that the uh, that your mother Mary loves dearly, yes. and so he wanted, and he would find creative ways to get people to accept Jews, Gent, like I said, everyone. They would accept these miraculous medals all over Europe. Well, when the Pope called for missionaries to go to Asia, he quickly volunteered, and he left behind this incredible monastery that he had built, and uh, all of these brothers there. <clears throat> and he got on a, a train all across Europe, sick every single day, wow. sick, struggling mightily through uh, tuberculosis, many days having to just be propped up, held up wow. by his brother Friars, and then getting on a boat, going overseas. Now I get seasick just thinking about being on a boat. So uh, being sick on uh, the sea plus tuberculosis, this, this is a penance that he gladly and joyfully endured. He gets to Japan and they're like, uh, okay, what can you offer? You have money? No. Uh, do you speak Japanese? No. Well, then why, why, why are you here? <laughs> you know, he's like, because Our Lady wants me to build a monastery here. She wants a city in Japan, and she wants me to print the Night of the Immaculata in Japanese. And so he, he bartered a deal. He agreed to teach in the seminary in exchange for the right to look for property. And the, Our Lady led him very... Uh, carefully to a special spot right outside of Nagasaki. And it was so special that when the America dropped the bomb on that city, it destroyed yes. everything except for their monastery. Wow. And uh, the bomb blast ended at the gate. And so they were able to uh, go and help uh, those that were dying. They were able to help uh, give aid to those that were injured or sick. And uh, they were able to be an aid in that critical moment. He did begin to uh, produce this uh, newspaper in Japanese, but then he wasn't satisfied. He wanted more because he wanted to convert the whole world out of zealousness for souls for the Immaculata. So then he went to India. And when he got to India, <clears throat> he uh, requested a meeting with the bishop. And the bishop kind of knew by that point. Like, you know, word gets around, right? So yeah. uh, he's going to want yes. a monastery. And so the, the Catholic bishop began to give him the runaround. But Max, he's a very wise and intelligent uh, man. So what he did was he went to go see the Orthodox bishop. And then when, when the bishop, the Catholic bishop heard that he was hanging out with the Orthodox bishop, he gave him a meeting, you know. And so uh, he was able to meet with him, but the, but the Catholic bishop didn't want to give him anything. So during the whole meeting, he never let Max talk. He, he did a filibuster on the guy. <laughs> So the next day, Max knew he had to like go back to Japan, so his time was running out. So he was sitting in the waiting room, waiting to have the follow-up meeting with the bishop, and he wasn't sure what to do or what to say. And he sees a statue of St. Therese of Lisieux, and that's one of his intercessors. Yes. So he immediately asks for her intercession, and a rose petal fell from her hands. Yeah onto the base of the statue, and he wow. knew exactly that, that his intentions would be accepted. So when he gets the chance, he gets called into the bishop's office. The bishop says, you may build your monastery. 
Amen. There Thanks, you go. Appreciate that's Amen. all I asked for. Amen. Thanks, Andres. Right. Now, uh, and uh, unfortunately for Max, he would never see that uh, come yeah. to fruition. But he did obtain permission for the uh, for the Francis the Franciscans to build there. So he ends up going back to Japan. But he was so sick that the uh, his superiors uh, called him back to Poland. Because they were worried that he would die there, yes. and they really wanted him back in Poland. So he goes back to Neopokolanov, which is just outside of Warsaw, mm. right? And uh, by this point in time, the Nazis under Hitler were already stirring up much trouble across Europe. They'd crossed the Rhine. But in 1939, they uh, did their blitzkrieg invasion mm -hmm. into Poland. Now, again, what I said earlier about Poland being like the this great people with fervor, national pride that gets just torn up by you know Prussia or G or Germany and uh, Russia or at this point it's now the uh, communists in Russia or the Austrians are always trying to destroy this great little nation. So when in 1939 when the Nazis invade from the west, 15 days later the communists invade from the east. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it's a socialist communist uh, you know vice on these poor Polish yeah, people. It's a mess. Well, when they bombed Warsaw, the Nazis did, they clipped his monastery. So in 1939 when they bombed Warsaw, there was over 800 friars living in this monastery. It's the largest monastery in the history of the world. Wow. And it's the city of our of our lady, city of Immaculata. And you, if you just stop and think about that for a second, what would cause 800 men to flock to be there, right? I mean, what what was so incredible? Most of that vast majority of these men didn't go on to become priests. They weren't studying for the priesthood. They were just brothers. Wow. They just wanted to be there, to wow. live this Marian life. And they were attracted to this uh, saintly soul, right? Because I think when we meet people who are saintly, we can smell it on them. Yeah. Right? We were just drawn into that. Yeah. So, uh, so when they bombed Warsaw and they clipped the monastery, Max brings all the brothers together. And uh, he says, listen, go home. Just go home. Go be with your family. Wow. You know, be with them, uh, help them, care for them. These these are going to be very trying times, and most men would not go. They refused to go. Now he was actually arrested very early on. So when the Nazis took possession of Poland, they they went door to door to door. So when they came to the monastery, they arrested him and they sent him to a concentration camp. And this was 1939. Yeah. He doesn't oh, die wow. until 41. Now in 1939, he gets sent to a concentration camp. But when he goes to a jail first, where they torture him. Yes. When he's there. 100 friars write a letter begging them to release them and said in the letter, they're like, take me instead. I will give myself, just give us Max back. It's a fair trade, you know? <laughs> 100 people begged to be swapped out with Max. If I were arrested today, my own children would not be asked, <laughs> would not be asked to swap out with me, okay? So it's like, it's amazing to see how loved he was by his people. He gets sent to a concentration camp and he only converts the commandant. So they sent him home. Wow, <laughs> awesome. like, they figured it was better for him to be home than to be converting. It's too dangerous here. <laughs> <laughs> it's too dangerous. He's converting the, the commandant. So uh, at that point, Max is no longer allowed to distribute his uh 
periodical, the Night mm -hmm. of the Maculata, in any language. He's no longer allowed to do the radio show. He's no longer allowed to operate the airplane. So they, the Nazis shut him down. In fact, they, they began to put spies in his midst. They would have uh, uniformed soldiers on the property, and they would have undercover uh, agents on the property because yeah. he converted his monastery from a uh, broadcasting mecca Mother Angelica, you know, yeah, probably took I'm much a inspiration lot of Mother Angelica connections from, here. Yeah. Right, from uh, St. Max Kobe. Uh, he converted it from this uh, multimedia mecca to a farm and a hospital. And he began to care for the transient Jews that were starting to be rounded up and headed back to, uh, to concentration camps. So he would feed people, he would clothe them, he would uh, care for their, if they were wounded or sick or whatever, whatever he could do. And I think that speaks to the heart of the evangelist, right? It, it, he had the state-of-the-art printing presses, or he would have nothing. In either way, he would just still have this zealousness for souls. Yeah. So whatever God gives him, he's going to leverage that for the salvation of souls. It's an amazing story. So uh, at this point, he is uh, just doing what he can with uh, what he has left. He is actually trying to convert the guards, and he actually knows who's the spies and who, who aren't. The, under, the undercover ones, and he's actually giving them miraculous medals as well. There's great stories about that. But, you know, um, this morning as I was praying my uh, the morning prayers, I was looking up, I had this beautiful image of the crucified Lord on our wall at our home chapel. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the passion. I was praying the, the, the mysteries, of, the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, our Lord's passion and how he mm -hmm. went in sorrowful across the Kidron Valley and up the other side into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know who did that before he did? A thousand years before that happened. You know who did that? Mm -hmm. David, King David. Oh. When his son tried to uh, uh, steal the throne from him, David, according to uh, the Bible, according to 1 Samuel, goes across the Kidron Valley in great sorrow with his court. And uh, he's very sorrowful and distressed. And there are people along the way who are deriding him and just abusing him. And, and his own court are like, David, give me permission. I'll go over there and lop off his head. And David said, no. No, do not return evil for evil, you know, return evil f with good. And uh, so David goes through his own passion. Well, so did St. Max Colbe. In 1941, he knew what was coming. And uh, he knew that the day was going to come when they would arrest him finally, and his life would be required of him. So uh, there was uh, some black cars at the gate one morning. The night before, he had been waking up. He woke up uh, throughout the night, uh, and every hour he would go cell to cell to cell, waking his brother Fires up and saying, hey, would you come pray with me? Wow. And he would spend the entire night praying about what would happen that next morning. And that next morning, he got the call from the front gate saying, there's a, a line of black cars with Gestapo here. And he said, yes, Mary. And then he hung up the phone. <laughs> And the Gestapo come all the way to the gate. And there's actually pictures. If you Google St. Max Kolbe and you look at the pictures on, online, you'll see pictures of him standing next to these Nazis. Because when they showed up, he gave them a tour. <laughs> he showed them around, you know, like in here's where we printed, you know, we, oh, by the way, we, you know, several million people read our newspaper. How, how many people read yours? Oh, yeah, that's cute. <laughs> you know, Max Kolbe was crushing it, you know, and he showed them everything. And then they arrested him and took him away. So you can see the pictures from that morning where they were arrested him. And uh, he eventually makes his way to Auschwitz. 
when he's in Auschwitz, you know, uh, these are bleak times. He's sick with tuberculosis. They don't hardly feed him. They give him a, a bread about the size of the palm of your hand. And it's usually like stale uh, and just it's in terrible condition. And uh, maybe you got a little bit of soup, you know, flavored water, really. Um, but every night, Max Kobe would give half of his bread away. And he would go from bunk to bunk to bunk all night long, either hearing confessions or praying over people. Because he was a Catholic priest, uh, he would do the worst jobs in camp. And one of the things the Nazis would do is, see, the Nazis were very superstitious. And so they would make these priests carry the dead bodies to the, the, the ovens because they, they thought that, would, that was um, – like a very superstitious thing to do, like to touch, like Jews thinking you're unclean if you mm -hmm. touched a dead body. You know, that's how these Nazis were thinking. But Matt, whatever they gave him to do, digging ditches, carrying dead bodies, he did so with a great love and great delicacy, with great fervency to, to, uh, to serve the will of the Father uh, through the Son, the Holy Ghost, and, and to serve Our Lady. And often he would be sick, he'd be taken to the infirmary where he would sit at the front door, and as people People came in, he would uh, bless them. And then as they, as the dead bodies would go out, he would pray over them, you know. So where, wherever he was, whatever he did, in any circumstance, it didn't matter. Again, he could have airplanes and printing presses or just a half a loaf of bread, whatever it was. It was all for the glory of God and the salvation of souls through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Well, um, it was, uh, it was uh, an occasion where a man from his block, Block 14 in Auschwitz, had escaped. And the rule was, if a man escapes, then they will take 10 other men as reprisal. So they will kill 10 men in exchange for the one. So when, when he wakes up and he, they discover, because they, they call the barracks to attention. So they're not military men, but they had to stand at attention like they were yeah. military men. And they essentially stand there throughout the entire day. If you fall, if you, you know, if you kneel down or you were to fall, then they would just kill you. They would just shoot you right then and there. Um, they would be guards with dogs, you know, Doberman pinchers and, you know, machine guns, just and very intimidating. And these men, again, were very emaciated. They were very sick, poor, they were, they were poorly fed, and they were overworked all the time, slave labor. And so just standing there, for 12 hours was a huge, huge deal. At the end of the 12 hours, uh, Carl Fritz shows up. He's the deputy base command commander. And I want you to Google this guy, Carl Fritz, Auschwitz. And I want you to see a picture of him. I want you to look into his eyes. Because this, when you look into this man's eyes, you can't help but believe this man was completely possessed. I mean, just evil personified. So... Carl Fritz comes and he, uh, he begins the process of choosing the 10 that will starve to death in reprisal for the one man who escaped. By the way, the man who escaped six months later would be rearrested and he would eventually die as well. So uh, Carl Fritz, is, his, his MO was to go up and down the ranks. Now, there is a man who lives here and his father 
was standing three rows behind Max Kolbe on this day. Wow. And this man has told, his father told him this story. His father took him to Auschwitz to tell the story. And uh, I've had this man tell the story for me many times. It's an amazing story. And uh, his father was there in the camp when Max was, uh, you know, he almost busted in on a, on a secret mass being said by Max and some of the other priests. You know, they, they used an opportunity where uh, there was uh, some Jews that were playing uh, some instrumental music music for the Nazi guards, distracting everybody. So they were, the priests were in a bunker saying mass or in one of the barracks saying mass and there were some lookout guards and, and my friend's father tried to bust in and they're like, you're not, you're not getting in there, dude. <laughs> Something powerful is going on inside and you're not allowed in. So it's a pretty cool story. But on this day, uh, Carl Fritz begins the process of going down the ranks and he was intimidating and terrorizing these poor men. In fact, um, what Carl would do is he he would like he'd go from man to man to man. He'd look them in the eye and just try to scare them to death. And if you think about it, the power uh, that the Nazis claimed to have was the power over life and death. The, the, if you believed that, then you were in complete and utter fear. Yeah. You were a slave at that yeah. point. Uh, but what if it's not true? What if they didn't have that power over you? Amen. You know, it reminds me of uh, Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, fear not the one who can kill the body, but rather fear the one who can take body and soul and cast it into the fiery pit of hell. So he's going down the ranks and he would look at one man and then shoot across his shoulder to like a two or three ranks behind you. And it would just, just put the fear of God into these poor men. And then they knew that they got selected. They were going to starve to death. They were going to die. Uh, my friend's father had been selected. Uh, he had survived three selections. Wow. But on this day, Carl chose him. Carl did this whole, you back there, you kind of thing. But he was so scared that he couldn't make his body move. Wow. Jeez. And so because he didn't move, the guy next to him mistakenly thought maybe he got selected, oh, so my. he took a step. Oh, wow. And Carl cool. said, fine, you. Wow. Imagine being that guy. Oh, oh my oh, goodness. Oh, oh. That's a big mean, mistake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something like, I would do that. You know, it's like, oh, what? You know, so Carl, I mean, my friend's father, uh, my, my friend would not have existed had he taken that step. It, it, none of the, his siblings would be alive wow. today. So, um, he goes to the line. The, one of the last men he chooses, Carl chooses, is a man by the name of Gaubnicek. And Gaubnicek was a Jewish fellow, and he had a wife and kids, and he began to sob bitterly because he knew that he was going to die. And he was like, what about my wife, my kids? No. And so he was sobbing, and he was in tears on his hands and knees. And, and uh, Max Kolbe knew that this was the moment. This was the moment when Our Lady had visited him when he was a boy and offered him the two crowns. This was that moment, and he knew that he must say yes to Our Lady in this, in this very moment. So what he did was he immediately broke the ranks. He just pushed everybody out of his way, and he went straight up to Karl Fritz. And it really freaked out the Nazis. They were like, whoa, like who would dare? Just right. walk up to us like this. I mean, they, they were didn't know what to do. I mean, it was amazing that he wasn't shot dead on the spot. But he gets up there and he's like, who are you and what do you want? He said, uh, I am a Catholic priest and I want to replace this man. I want him to live and I will take his place. Carl thought about it for a second and he said, fine. 
And uh, Gabnichek was able to go back in line. And he would go on to live. He would actually uh, bring testimony to the heroic nature of Maximilian Kolbe that was part of his canonization process. Max Kolbe, on 1941, on this day, he, he actually helps the other prisoners to the starvation bunker. So it's a tiny room. It's not even as big as this room that we're in now. It's much smaller than this. Dark. There's only one little window, but it's, it's like pitch black in there, generally speaking. And they had to strip down to no clothes. They had to go in there completely naked. And uh, Max helped the other prisoners inside this room. And for 14 days, they stayed there. Now, there was a, a bucket to which they could, you know, relieve themselves. But uh, generally speaking, after several days, men would even drink that, you know, just yeah. to survive. They got so desperate. Now, the, again, the Nazis were very, very superstitious people. So the, the Nazis actually wouldn't attend to these men in this bunker. They instead would have uh, Jewish uh, collaborators uh, – that were that were prisoners there, mm -hmm. but they got special treatment because they helped to manage the uh, the other prisoners. So they had a, a Jewish fellow who would tend to this cell and all these men. So these men, these ten men inside this tiny little room, barely any uh, place to stretch or to to get comfortable. It's a concrete four walls, you know, kind of a situation for fourteen days. Instead of screaming and begging, which was the norm according to the guard, the the Jewish fellow that guarded this, he would actually testify to this after the war. Instead of the screaming and begging that would typically happen in these in this regard, what he heard was uh, the singing of of hymns. He heard Max Kolbe leading people in prayer, praying over the dying or the dead hearing confessions even. And after 14 days, the Nazis were like, enough is enough. We have, let's end this. Let's get this over with. And Max Kolbe, and I believe there was one other prisoner that was left alive after 14 days. But at that point, uh, Max Kolbe was still alive. And when when the uh, they were going to inject him with acid, carbolic acid, and, and Max uh, reached out and offered his arm to him. <laughs> You know, and uh, and he was injected, and he died fairly quickly at that point. But he died with a smile on his face, and uh, and with that is an incredible story that affected even the guard, because the guard would say that is how a man dies, when he was questioned about his role at Auschwitz later, when he recant, rec uh, recounted the story of this heroic saint, and uh, with funny stories, we because they took his body, all the bodies, and they burned them in the oven. So we, you'd think we have no uh, first-class relics of St. Max, but it's not true. We actually do. Uh, when he was still at Neopokolinov, the brother friars that cut his hair uh, would save his clippings. And it would anger him quite a bit. He's like, throw that stuff away. I don't want anything left. And they're like, yeah, no problem, uh, Max. We got, we got that. And they would put this, this – they have a bag of his hair. You know? so, so you'll see some relics of the hair of uh, – or maybe there was – there might be some of his habit or something. Thing or one of his habits, but but uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story, and to this day, it it boggles my mind that more people don't know the heroic courage of this man. That at the beginning of your show, you were talking about how uh, you know, oh, you're just being too zealous, you're being too excitable, it's just over piety, you're losing Jesus and all this. But the reality is, the great saints, and I mean, think of them. Max Kolbe, Padre Pio, uh, Teresa of Avila. I mean, you can just go down the list. Um, St. Dominic, whose yeah. feast day we celebrated, I think, yesterday. Yes. You know, um, these people were like all for the love of God, like convert the whole world or die trying. Yep. They weren't lukewarm. 
You know, they weren't lukewarm. Well, recently, I gave a couple of talks at a parish staff, and um, I was I went back and reread uh, Revelation chapter two and three, when the apostle receives the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor from Jesus himself. The apostle John. Yes, those were his parishes. I mean, think of it. It's like it's almost like it's essentially his diocese. You wouldn't have used those that term in those days right. that would come later <clears throat> but essentially it's like the diocese of the apostle john and those are his churches and he's taking the dictation okay lord go ahead to the church in ephesus say this <laughs> you are going to die because you've lost the faith I'm, I'm i'm embellishing here to make the point you know you imagine being the bishop who has to take the like Oh, thanks, Lord. Yeah. Any bright spots? Anything positive you'd like to say, Lord? Can I couch this in positive language? Yeah, right. You know, and when you go back and you look at those, those seven churches were all within a 50-mile radius of each other, these little towns. And they all struggled with two major issues. And this is, we're talking first century here. Yeah. These churches struggled with um, paganism and sexual morality. Fast forward to 2020. What are we struggling with? Yeah. Paganism and sexual morality. And it's from uh, Revelation 3. It's during this uh, encounter with the Lord, the Apostle John writes down, you know, I wish that you would be hot uh, or cold, but not lukewarm, because I will spew you out of my yes. mouth. And I think of that, and I think of Max Kolbe, and I go, this guy was willing to be as zealous as he possibly could muster, because... God, please forbid I should ever be called lukewarm. Go yeah. along to get along. Normal. Every day. One thing that you mentioned when he said, you said he started an entire city. And I thought to myself, that quote from Mother Angelica, that's why I said there's a connection. It's like, unless you're willing to do the ridiculous, God cannot do the miraculous. Could yeah. you imagine a, a poor Franciscan saying, I'm going to go start a city. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up a city and have my yeah. own. Oh, yeah. Okay. You go ahead and do that. Yeah. But he did it. And if he, didn't, if he wasn't ridiculous, he would have never been able to do that. I know. And then I was thinking just how, just how he attracted, you know, 800 friars to his city. Yeah. Because they could sense the presence of holiness. Imagine going into Auschwitz. And although, like, we see that as his death sentence. I'm sure he saw that as a mission field. And yeah. he's over there working miracles, on, miracles of grace, no doubt attending to the sick, attending to the dying. I bet, although it's a place of suffering, I bet he was, you know, living it up as far as his priestly vocation was concerned. Yeah. There's no better place for him to have been. I know. Yeah. And we, we give our, we let ourselves off the hook way too much. Yes. We're being honest. Yeah. You know, what we're, we're really afraid of is suffering. Yes. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas and his uh, secunda, secunda, right. the second part of the second part when talking about emasculation, he talks about how we are, we fear the loss of pleasure. Yes. You know, so we won't do the arduous thing Amen. because we don't want to suffer. Yes. We don't want to lose anything. And I, I struggle with it. I, everybody I know struggles with it. And yet Max Colbe was like, whatever, you take my airplane away? Okay, great. No problem. I'll just make a farm. You take my farm away? Okay, great. No problem. I'll just go from rack to rack to rack praying over people. You know, it's like no matter what you do to him, it wouldn't have – he wouldn't care. Like this we – we, I got into the van to bring my family here, mm -hmm. and I just happened to notice that my 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 car has all these scratches down the side. And I'm crawling. Yeah. You know, and, I just, and it dawned on me, St. Max would not care. He'd <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, be like, okay, praise God. I guess it wasn't yeah. God's will that I should have a nice car. You know, it's just like – 
I, I, we're selfish people. One thing I was lamenting to Claire the other day, you know, that very famous woman, that Katie doctor, Stella Emanuel, and she says some things that people don't agree with, obviously. But one thing I noticed, and I was like, Claire, look at look at the conviction in her eyes. Yeah. She, they're saying, you believe in this and this, and she's not saying, oh, I'm sorry, and she's all, she's like saying, yeah, I believe that, and she's like, and although she's a Protestant woman preacher, yeah. and I don't agree with any of that, there's a conviction in her eye, there's a zealousness that she's not doubting, she's not stepping down, and I can only imagine that that's kind of the same fire that Maximilian Kolbe had, like yeah. the power of the Holy Spirit stepping forward between those ranks. Maximilian Kolbe had that that something inside of him, that fire of the love of God that we're just lacking so much in the church. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, St. Justin Ferrer. Tell me. You know the story? No, tell me. This guy, is this Dominican? Oh, my. Oh, yes. Oh, man, this Vincent, guy. Vincent, Vincent Ferrer. Vincent Ferrer. I said Justin. Right. I, yeah, I was like, Vincent. does he have a brother? <laughs> Vincent, Vincent. is his cousin. Yes. Okay. Vincent, <laughs> no, no. Vincent Ferrer is me. his name. Uh, this guy had some 65,000 miracles attributed to him before he died. He rose many people from the dead. Yes. Oh, I mean, he, he would preach these missions and people would gather and he would be preaching because he was called the angel of the apocalypse. Yes. You know, the story goes, wow. he was on his deathbed and our, uh, he was visited by our Lord and, uh, and some saints. And they were like, you are going to go preach the end of the world or else you're going to die. You know, and he's like, okay, I'll go. Fine. <laughs> get up from your bed and go. You know, so he goes. And he is just like, there's incredible, just inc insane stories yes. of him flying off, like, you know, just raising people, people levitating in midair at his command. And yes. just, I, I remember what, a story, he was giving a homily at somebody's funeral and there was a woman dead in the casket and he was preaching yes. about this and he, and then she got up. That's right. No, he's like, nobody's, she got up, rose from the dead and said, listen to this That's man right. and laid no back way. down and went and died. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I thought of him a minute ago because you think of, I mean, my own life, my own, I, my, I affectionately have called myself since 2007, the Catholic hack, you know, yes. the, the donkey of Jesus, yes. uh, because I would rather fumble my way through this thing out of pure zealousness yes. than be the other end of that spectrum. And right. St. Farrah was kind of like that, you know, like he had a lot more going for him, yes. but, uh, you know, he would just do these like just full on zealous parish missions and people would gather in the squares and he would preach it hard because he knew souls were at stake. Yes. And again, I just think too many people are like, go along to get along. We just yeah. want things to be normal. We want the sky to be blue, the sun to be shining, and the humidity level low, and everybody to be happy, go lucky, and nice. Everybody to like us. I want yeah. my retirement package to yeah. work out, I, you know, bills paid. I want to go on vacation twice a year, you know, whatever. The, yeah. the, the, but where's the zealousness for getting to heaven no matter what? Right. And like uh, when we had Adrian on, he talked about how, you know what? Everyone's told that little story, you know, we're all called to be saints. But like, as he said, nobody's expecting you to do the things required to be yeah. a saint. You know, nobody expects you to, you know, like you're saying today, I think there's this issue of kind of like complacent Catholics, right? Yeah. Just, just doing enough, yeah. you know, just, you know, going to mass, receiving in the communion, you know, maybe receiving in your hand, whatever it is, just doing enough. You know, this, well, my God knows where, where my head is at and where my heart is at. And it's like, why... When it comes to this faith, why just do enough? When God gave us everything we have, why why is that the exactly. the you know the mindset? Um, fasting for twenty four that's too much. Fasting for twenty four hours, no. That, why would you do you know? That's what the saints did. Mortification, mortifying our senses. And they would laugh no. at what we consider tough. Yeah, <laughs> but and nobody you know mortification is never really 
talked about yeah. as it should be, right? But that's how that's how the Saints were made. So yeah, yeah. it's definitely a huge problem. And w one of the reasons why you stood out to our teens, and speaking of the preaching of Vincent Freire, is that you can't make somebody hot if you are cold. Young men want to follow a leader. And I think that's one of the reasons why Maximilian, it was, yes, it was a Marian lifestyle, hundred percent, but it was that they saw a leader who was like willing to take charge. His name Maximilian meant the greatest. This, this guy is willing to take charge and to be a leader and to lead souls to Jesus and Mary. And he's saying, be extreme, give it all up. And so I want to conclude our program with these two quotes to send us off to ponder. And these are the words of Maximilian, our parting words today. Entrust yourself without any limitation to divine providence through the Immaculata. You are the instrument in the Immaculata's hands. Therefore, do solely what she wants. Accept each thing from her hand. Have recourse to her in all things, like a child to his mother, and trust all things to her. And if Maximilian Colby was alive today, I bet those would be his parting words, in addition to wear the miraculous medal. Wear the miraculous medal. He said that that is the sign of the militia of the Immaculata because the Immaculata alone has a promise from God to crush the head of the serpent. And conversion and success in evangelization is a grace. And the miraculous medal is like a silver bullet of grace that can strike the head of the, serp of the serpent in the right moment. Mr. McLean, would you conclude with a Hail Mary for us? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to see more videos, check out www.truefaith.tv. And after this video... Go to livinghislife.net, watch it, send it to your husband, send it to your brother, send it to your neighbor. God bless you, God love you, and we'll see you soon.